Our scripture passage, it comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things, and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. And on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. All right. Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. Now, uh, the church calendar, if you're familiar with that at all, it says that this is the second day of Christmas. And you might be thinking, what? Another day of Christmas? I haven't even cleaned up from the first day of Christmas yet. Right? I don't know how it happens. I mean, the, the mess that has taken place in our house in the past 24 hours is just unbelievable. And and I have a system, and I have devised a system that is supposed to work, where each kid, as they open a present, all the wrapping paper and all that stuff goes into a trash bag. But I'll tell you what, my system doesn't work. <laughs> and last night, I was going to bed, and it is just, it's a war zone. It's, it's a disaster. Two days of Christmas, I, I can't imagine, two days of Christmas would be too much to handle. But there's more than two days. On the church calendar, it says there are, in fact, 12 days of Christmas. 
You remember these last few weeks have been Advent. We've spent four Sundays celebrating these these different values, faith and hope and joy and love. And on Christmas Eve, we lit the Christ candle, which reminds me, maybe we should have lit this thing at some point today. Next week, we'll have it lit. Um, (laughs) But we've been celebrating this in preparation, getting ready for Christmas. And now, Christmas is here. And we get these 12 days to celebrate. The rest of the days of, of Christmas, these, these following ones, I, I'm really starting to like them because they're different than the rest. Over the years as a pastor, I've become especially fond of this 12 days of Christmas kind of celebration because everyone else is moving on now, Right? Everybody else is is getting ready for the next thing. Santa has already come. All that Christmas stuff is getting moved to the discount shelves at the stores. Pop music is back on the radio. And here we are with 10 days left to celebrate Jesus without all those distractions, without all that other stuff that gets mixed up into it. So, it kind of feels like our own little special time as a church. Our own little extra moment where we get to celebrate Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at this story in Luke chapter 2, a story we know pretty well. And we're going to see how the details of this passage can lead us to celebrate. How this passage can make us celebrate over the next 10 days or so. And so, pretty simply this morning, I want us to look at three things in this passage. The setting, the movement, and the message. The setting, and the movement, and the message. So let's talk about the setting first. This is a really familiar moment for us, isn't it? We've seen it so many times. It is the nativity scene. It is something we have seen depicted by little figurines on coffee tables and front yards all over town our entire lives. But do you ever really think about it? Do you ever give much thought to that scene? Why did God choose that particular setting for his arrival? Why did he pick those particular people for the announcement of his birth? What's the meaning behind that moment? Well, I think it can be summed up in one word, and that word is lowliness. Everybody say lowliness. Lowliness. All right, you're listening. Great. This is a scene of lowliness. This scene is, it's spectacularly undistinguished. Now, I know when we see it on those little tables and in those front yards, we always see it lit up. Everybody has their beards, you know, nicely trimmed. (laughs) They have those serene faces. They've got their robes on. Everybody's looking nice. But the real scene was a lot grittier than that. This was a moment where there is a, a newborn child laying in a feeding trough that's made for animals. And he is surrounded by men who it just told us have been living in a field around sheep. They're inside of a stable. 
in a tiny farming town, kind of in the middle of nowhere. That means there's no Christmas music playing in the background. Nobody has halos around their heads. And that's the point. That is the, the, the scene that Luke wants us to see. It is not glorious. It's the opposite of glorious. In fact, it is a completely embarrassing way for the Savior of the world to arrive. That means, obviously, we didn't get to choose it. If we knew the Messiah was coming, if we knew that this long-predicted king was about to arrive, who was going to fix everything and save the world, we would have pulled out all the stops, wouldn't we? We would have gotten them the, the best bed and the nicest hospital. We would have maybe gotten a reality TV show to go and give their home a makeover while they were gone. Give them free diapers for life. We would want to impress. We'd want to impress the baby king when he comes. But God, he didn't give us a chance to do that. Instead, he's trying to teach us something. He wants to show us something, even with this first picture. This scene it's supposed to show us the way the kingdom of God works. Can you see that? It's supposed to show us how the kingdom of God operates, that the kingdom of God is upside down. The kingdom of God is like Jesus would say, it's the place where the last are first and the first are last. And you know what else it shows us? This scene shows us who salvation is really for. God's salvation, it's not for the proud. It's not for the powerful. It's not for the people who are put together. It's not for those people who think that they have earned it. But it's for people who know they don't. People who know they haven't earned it. People who know they don't deserve it. Those are the people who get God's salvation. That term that the angel uses in verse 11 when he says that, that this is the Messiah. You know that word, right? That's a formal title. It is the term used all throughout the Old Testament to describe this great king who is going to come and lead God's people into this reign of perfect peace and righteousness, but not only that, who is going to heal the whole world. Like we talked about a few weeks ago, where the lion would lay down with the lamb, this moment of perfect shalom, who is going to free the people of Israel from all the tyranny that they'd been under for years, who is going to bring perfect justice and righteousness. This Messiah is someone they had looked forward to for hundreds of years. Prophets looked forward to him. Priests were looking forward to him. Kings were looking forward to him. They were all waiting for this king, this Messiah. The, the Greek word is Christos, who's finally going to come. So who gets the message? Who, is the, who are the people who, who are the first ones to find out that this king is finally here? Who gets the birth announcement? Well, probably somebody important, right? 
Maybe Herod. Or at least somebody who's in his court somewhere. But no. Who is it? It's shepherds. Random shepherds. Shepherds in a field. How many were there? Who knows? What were their names? Who knows? In regards to history, these people, these guys are, they're literally nobodies. And that's the way the kingdom works. God has not come to bring us some kind of trickle-down salvation that starts with the powerful, that starts with the elite, and then eventually, kind of hopefully, will find its way down to the ordinary people like us. But the kingdom of God is a grassroots kingdom. It's a kingdom that Jesus says is like a mustard seed. It starts out small. It starts out almost invisible. It starts out so unsuspecting, but then it grows. And it explodes and it becomes this tree where all the birds can rest in its branches. This scene, this setting is a starting place that is so low. And you know why it's so low? So everybody can access it. In fact, the only thing that could possibly prevent you from accessing it is pride. It's the thought that, well, that's beneath me. That's, I'm better than that. Those, those aren't my kind of people. I don't associate <laughs> with that crowd. Yeah, I see why you would come for them. They need help, but I don't really need that much help. Not like them. I'm, I'm doing all right on my own. In other words, this, this setting, this scene, is telling us that the kingdom of God is meant for a people who can see their need. Jesus comes for people who aren't put together. People who recognize that we are lowly. That we don't deserve him. That in a sense, we are all those dirty, mangy shepherds with nothing special to offer God. So the setting, it shows us that Jesus, he came in the most humble way, but he's not beneath us. He came in the manger because he came for you and me. He came for lowly people. Well, now let's talk about the movement in this passage. Has anybody ever gotten a free upgrade on an airplane? You know, I don't think I ever have. Anybody here ever have? Melissa's gotten one. See, I think I would remember if I'd ever gotten one. I think I would cherish that moment <laughs> all my life. Remembering that day when you go up and you, you say your name to the lady and she, you know, looks it up and says, how would you like to sit in first class today? How would you like free drinks and free food? And like, of course, I'd love that. Can you imagine that in reverse, though? Imagine if, if you are already one of those platinum, medallion-level frequent flyers. That you've just come 
in from the VIP lounge where you were, who knows what goes on in there. <laughs> you head over to that place where you don't even have to wait in line, you know, you just walk up straight to the desk because you're so special. And the flight attendant looks up your name and says, I'd like to offer you a free downgrade today. Back row, right by the restroom. No leg room, seat doesn't recline, what do you think? Of course, no. <laughs> but, but imagine, on the other hand, what if that was who you were and you volunteered for that spot? Or instead, as you're thinking of it, you say, you know what, that's even better than I want. Put me down in the, the luggage area. No, you know, I'm just going to walk to New York. <laughs> Let somebody else have my seat. Now that's ridiculous. But do you, can you understand that that is an infinitely smaller downgrade than the one Jesus chose to take on his way to the manger? Do you recognize that there has never been a bigger step down in the history of the universe than the one taking place in this passage? And the Apostle Paul, later on when he's trying to tell us about who Jesus is, he says that movement tells us a lot about who our Savior is. He says in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus, even though he was the, in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something he should use for his own advantage. Instead, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So he's saying that for this manger moment that we're all so familiar with, for that to even happen, first, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, had to make a choice. He had to choose to act for our advantage instead of for his own. He had to take on a human body with all of its limitations. Do you understand that? The powerful, eternal, living word of God, the one who spoke all things into existence, had to choose to be born fragile and weak and dependent. And if that wasn't enough, he wasn't even born in a nice place. He wasn't born with a good name. He went from the throne room of God to a stable made for animals. He went from dwelling with God perfectly in perfect bliss and security to being an infant in the care of a carpenter and a teenage mom. And it was a time in the world where there wasn't no, there was no modern medicine, right? There's no air conditioning or, or heat. It was a time when just surviving was uncertain. And that's only the tip of the iceberg. Our minds cannot fathom what it really means. 
for the unchanging and unchangeable God to take on our changing nature. To go from speaking the law to living under it and its consequences. For being the exalted and glorified Son of God to then just becoming a normal, ordinary man. An ordinary man, right? The kind of man that people saw him and they underestimated him. They ignored him. They rejected him. They didn't recognize him, but instead they judged him. Some people even despised him. And of course, being born, it also meant that the eternal God who existed before the foundation of the world would also have to die. That's what being born means. And it wasn't a good death. In his old age, surrounded by his loving family members. No, it was a cursed death. The death of a criminal. A shameful death. Disgraced in death. Luke, he shows us a humble scene. He shows us the Christ who's coming for a lowly people, right? And this is a picture intended us to show us what the kingdom's all about, to show us the kind of people that, that the Savior came for. But then in the middle of this picture is a child in a manger. And that manger represents the greatest movement downward that has ever taken place, the greatest movement downward that ever could take place. It is the Messiah's first giant step down, and it's a step on a road that will keep going down all the way to hell itself. And so we have this serene and still moment with people gathered around a small child. But the movement behind it, I hope you can see now, it's incomprehensible. We can't even get our minds around it. And so that brings us finally to the message behind all of this. We've seen the setting, we've seen the movement, but what is the message here? Again, the people are lowly. There is this downward plunge that's happened as God has stepped down. But the message that gets delivered around this whole thing, well, it's not lowly at all. The message, it soars to the highest heights, doesn't it? And it starts with the people who bring the message. There is nothing lowly about the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord who shows up in this blazing glory. The shepherds, as soon as they see him, they're scared to death. And of course they are. Nobody can possibly be prepared for that kind of moment. No one can get ready for the angel of the Lord showing up in the middle of the night. And then the angel makes that famous declaration. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people today. In the town of David, a Savior has been born for you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. 
And then the chorus breaks out. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now, talk about a contrast. We talked about how lowly this setting is, and here we have this explosive moment of God's glory. Into this dark and lonely scene, we get the the greatest good news ever. The most unexpected message, the Messiah, has come. He's here. He's finally here. And as the scene starts to wrap up, the shepherds go to Mary and Joseph, and they they tell them what they've heard. They share the message with them, and it tells us how they respond. It says, all who heard the message were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. It says that Mary, while everybody else is amazed with the news, Mary is is pondering it. She's treasuring it up in her heart. Now, we know the story. We know that this is chapter one of a book that keeps on going that we have read before. We know where all this is headed. But Mary doesn't know. Mary has no idea. And her wisdom shines through right here at this moment. She is pondering the shepherds. And their message. What does all this mean? What is the point? How is this going to work? You can imagine her thinking, right? How is a kid born to me, a nobody, who just gave birth in a stable, how is this kid going to end up the king of Israel? How is he going to be the Messiah? She doesn't know. But we know. The reason why we're here this morning, the reason why we worship today is because we know that he stepped down to the lowest point possible to raise us up. He went down further than anyone could possibly ever imagine, even all the way to death, because he had to. Because that's where we were. That's where we are apart from him. We are in bondage to Satan, sin, and death. So it's the day right now after a big holiday. We've all just given people gifts. We've received gifts. We've been with people that we love. Some of us had a great day. Some of us didn't. Some of us ate too much. Some of us got into arguments. Some of us fell asleep on the couch watching TV. And this manger scene breaks into all of that with the message that God wants to do something extraordinary with your ordinary life. He has a purpose for you. He has a purpose for you that should surprise you. That like the shepherds that evening, it should fill your heart with wonder. Like Mary, it should make you ask that question, but why me? It is the reason for Jesus' birth. The reason for Jesus' birth, it's an extraordinary but very simple fact, and it's this. 
God wants you to know him. God wants you to know him. He wants you to follow him. He wants you to enjoy him forever. And so he sent his son into the world. He sent this eternal, cosmic king, this son who he loved, and he put him in your place so that you could have his place. Would you like an upgrade? That's the offer. Would you like a free upgrade? Jesus took this tremendous step down into a world of sin and misery and pain and death so that you and I can take a tremendous step up. So that we can know what it means to live in the presence of God forever. To know true joy. To finally experience life the way it was meant to be. And how do you get it? Not by working harder. Not by proving that we're worth it. Not by showing that we're the kind of people that deserve it. Because we aren't. We're lowly. We're undeserving. We are ordinary and sinful people. No, the only way we can get it is to receive it. All we can do is believe it and rejoice. That's the gospel. It really is good news of great joy. And it's a joy that if you hear it, if you believe it, it is contagious. I mean, look at these shepherds. They cannot stop talking about what they saw. They're overwhelmed with wonder. They want to tell everybody. And the people who they tell, how do they respond? Well, they're amazed. They're filled with wonder. That's what good news does for us. The old preacher, Charles Spurgeon, he says, Holy wonder will always lead you to grateful worship. So I want to encourage you to do that this morning. That's really the point of this whole sermon. We've got 10 days left of Christmas where we get to celebrate, where we get to wonder at this moment, where we can treasure it up and ponder it in our hearts, where we can turn away from those small and fading trinkets that we have that always disappoint us, and instead we can set our hearts on eternity where we can let the amazement flow out of us like these shepherds did. And where we can go and we can tell the world exactly what we've seen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for the mystery of your birth. We admit, Lord, that we don't deserve it. And we admit that our minds are too small even to totally understand it. But, Lord, we know that you have done great things for us. God, I pray for everyone in this room that you would give us joy. That you would allow us to rejoice, not in the little things that fade away, 
but in the truth that lasts forever. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.